If you would, turn with me today to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. We'll be in Luke, chapter 4, and looking at verses 16 to 21. And we'll be going through the next uh, several weeks, uh, kind of reflecting upon Jesus and looking to who Jesus is. Um, who Jesus is, and uh, the kind of overall uh, topic heading to this is who was this Christ to be? So over the next several weeks, we'll be asking this question and answering it through various scriptures. Who was this Christ to be? Uh, and today, uh, we will see in Luke four sixteen to 21, one aspect of that. Uh, Luke four sixteen to 21. Uh, as you get there, what do you make sure you always do when you're in your hometown? Now, I know for many of you, uh, you live in your hometown. So the question is probably more better asked this way. What do you make sure other people do when they visit you in your hometown, right? What are, what are the places that you always have to go? What are the restaurants you always have to visit, right? Uh, everyone's, we, oh, you're coming into town? Well, we got to stop by Pasquale's. Everyone's got to go by Pasquale's. Um, I don't know if that's the, the restaurant for you, but uh, maybe it is. Maybe it's something else. Uh, what's that? Greg's. Greg's. Yeah, let's go to Greg's Pizza. Let's get a pizza. Uh, let's get something for delivery. Uh, you know, these things. Uh, or maybe it's visiting some local store, right? Maybe there's some local store that you always make sure that people want to come and see, and maybe you never visit at any other time. Uh, you know, sometimes we do this with, with our hometown uh, spots is that we never visit it on our own, but whenever somebody else comes in, we always have to make sure we go there, right? Or, or maybe it's some other, maybe it's a park or some other natural local feature that, that comes to mind that you're like, yes, we got to go do that while you're in town or while we're in town. And the point is that we tend to have these places and, and things in our mind to do when visiting our home or when showing others around. Uh, these are things that, in our mind, make home special, right? There are things that evoke for us, this is what home is like. And it's also always a little bittersweet when things change. You, you, the store's not there, the restaurant closes, those kinds of things. When those things change and we're like, oh, man, remember when we used to always go and do that? Uh, it's a shame that it closed. It's, not, it's no longer here. Well, today in our passage, as we think of hometowns, we find Jesus in his hometown. He goes back to his hometown. Uh, and he had some time out. He was ministering. He was teaching. He was preaching. Um, he's taught, and the report has gone forth. And we see that in Luke 4.14. Uh, Luke tells us that the report has gone forth into the land. And then he comes home. And we probably don't often think about this, right? But because in the, the scripture narrative, right, we don't really have the years that Jesus was growing up. But we realize that Jesus didn't just like appear as an adult. He didn't just like, boom, I'm here, right? He was born, right? This is the year we celebrate that. This is the time of the year we celebrate that. He was born and he grew up. So he comes back to his hometown where he grew up, where people knew him, right? Where the people knew him. The people knew his family. They knew about him. Uh, they've heard reports about him now. And so, as Jesus comes home, what are the people to make? More than that, what does Jesus want the people to make of him as he returns? Today, Jesus tells them that they should 
that they should see and understand that in him, the scripture is fulfilled. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. And today I want us to see that in our passage. Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of prophecy, who has come to set right what has gone wrong. So I'll say that again. Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of prophecy, who has come to set right what has gone wrong. So let us read from the scriptures this morning and see this out of Luke 4, starting in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue. And on the Sabbath day, uh, on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to pre- proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And this is the word of the Lord. Luke's gospel places this story, this return to Nazareth, very close to the beginning of his ministry. Uh, and indeed, we, we find little detail about the, the real uh, start of his ministry, because if we go to Luke chapter 4, verse 1, we find this is the, his temptation. Right? So just to kind of track the, the chronology here of what goes on, Jesus is baptized, he's led into the wilderness for temptation, and then he goes into the land of Galilee and he begins ministering. But in Luke's gospel, we don't really get to see what, it, what that entails. Uh, and if you look here, right, at, at verse 13, uh, the devil, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time, which that's a little bit of a foreboding, foreshadowing, right, by Luke. But verses 14 and 15 tell us the extent of what else we need to know before we come back to Jesus in his hometown. And I just say that to say, if you go to the other Gospels, you'll have a lot more information about what transpired during this period. But in Luke's Gospel, we have just these two verses. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. That's it. That's all we get as to Jesus's ministry before he returns home. Uh, And as Christ returned home, right, we have no doubt that the reports about him have preceded him. That this one who grew up in Nazareth, uh, who maybe was noted as someone who was very interested in the scriptures, is suddenly being talked about everywhere in the region. And what they're saying about him is miraculous, literally miraculous, right? Because he's healing people. He's casting out demons. And as he teaches and preaches, he does so with authority. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, uh, we have this statement that the people were just marveled. They were gobsmacked because Jesus taught as one with authority, not like 
the Pharisees, the scribes, and the teachers of the law in their own day. So all these reports are trickling back home, and we have to ask, right, what will his neighbors, what will his childhood friends think about this one that they've known for years and now hear these marvelous things about? Well, let's see first in our passage in verse 16, the Christ's custom, the Christ's custom. Verse 16 tells us, and he came to Nazareth, right, where he had been brought up. Jesus returns to his hometown. And again, remember, kind of track his geographical progression. He's born in the town of Bethlehem. Uh, He lives there for some short period of time. Uh, When the Magi come to visit uh, and the Magi leave because they're warned in a dream not to return to Herod and tell him what's going on, Herod gets very angry. And so he says, kill all all the children, all the toddlers, two years and younger in that land. Uh, Joseph is warned about this in a dream himself, and they flee to Egypt. So Bethlehem to Egypt. And then in Egypt, they live there for a little bit until Herod's dead. And then he comes back into the promised land. Uh, Matthew 2.23 tells us and he, uh, this about the family, right? And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called the Nazarene. Uh, And there's also something there about the fulfillment of prophecy, right? Matthew, we see that a lot. Uh, We see the fulfillment of the prophecy out of Egypt. I called my son. So all these things uh, that have taken place, even even out of Exodus, right? That's talking in part about the Exodus of the people. Uh, But we understand from the scriptures that from all, all the way back to the very beginning, all these things have been pointing to Jesus, and uh, and so we see this. So so he grows up in Nazareth, this this little town. It was a little village. It was it wasn't the bustling center that Jerusalem is. Uh, it didn't have the notoriety, right? It, it it didn't. It wasn't special. It was just a town. It becomes special because that's where Jesus grows up, right? That's that's the specialty of it. But we see that the Christ's custom, right? What was his custom? What does he customarily do? Uh, wherever he is on the Sabbath, he's in the synagogue. Uh, this was Christ's custom, right? The Sabbath being the day appointed by God to rest from work, a day appointed for, um, for worship. And the synagogue is an interesting uh, kind of development in the religious history of the people, of the Jewish people, because this wasn't something that was necessarily directed to to be done by God. But it kind of arose out of when the people were carried off into exile, uh, they began to meet in the synagogue uh, because they couldn't meet in the temple. They didn't have their regular places of worship. And so they would meet together uh, and it became quite regular, a, a regular service. It became a regular fixture of the religious life of the people of Israel. Even to this day, they still meet in synagogues, right? And so it's it's a regular pattern, a regular uh, pattern of worship. Uh, it would not be like a church service like we're used to, right? Like what we do, uh, but we wouldn't feel so out of place in it because they have some of the similar things, right? There, there might be some singing. It's kind of debatable whether or not there was singing i think in the synagogue at this time Uh, but there would definitely be scripture readings and that's what we see here uh right this is what we see um in in this 
But importantly here, this was the Christ custom. And why is this important? Because this was the mission of Jesus. Jesus came preaching and teaching. When we think of the ministry and the mission of Jesus, we probably predominantly think of his miracles. Right? And we can sometimes think of him healing and we think of him in the ways in which he helped people and we think that this is what he came to do. Right? If you asked, I think, if you went out and took a poll of people in the streets and said, why did Jesus come? You might have some good church answers, right? Jesus came to uh, forgive us of our sins, uh, to sacrifice himself for us. You, you might get some of those answers. But I think a lot of them would be, he came to help people. Uh, he came to, to, to maybe give some good moral teaching, but he came to help people. He came, and he came and he did miracles. And that's a wonderful thing. But more important than the miracles. And that sounds kind of crazy, right? Because as you read the miracles, right, there are some, there are, uh, recently, me and Nathan, as we're going through studying the book of Luke, um, we came across the woman who had the, the discharge of blood for 12 years. This woman was desperate. She had spent all of her life savings on physicians to try and make her well for 12 years. Do you think it was a minor thing when she was healed by Jesus Christ of that discharge of blood? No. That was life-altering for her. But understand that as life-altering as that was, the more important ministry of Jesus is his preaching and teaching. Right, so understand that. I say something crazy, and I think we find it backed up in Scripture, okay? And I think that's what we'll get to here today. But test me on that. Try me on that. If I'm wrong, tell me. All right, when we think of the ministry and mission of Jesus, we need to think of his preaching and teaching because his aim, his purpose, his goal was much more than the healing of bodies. He came to do much more than fill bellies. Mark writes about the period before Jesus returns home. So right, again, the other gospels kind of give us more in between uh, than verses 14 and 15 give us here in Luke 4. But Mark 1, 35 to 39, Mark 1, 35 to 39, gives us this additional information about one incident that happens that I think highlights my point here. So that's why I bring it up. Uh, in rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, that is Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And I'll just pause there and say, why were they looking for Jesus? Because they wanted healing. They wanted to see miracles. They wanted uh, to be uh, demons cast out. They wanted all these things from Jesus. What does Jesus respond? And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and casting out demons. So I say that all, all to say, right? Preaching and teaching is the point of Jesus' ministry. The miracles are in one sense incidental, 
but they're hugely important, right? They're hugely important to the ministry of Jesus. I'm not, uh, I'm not denigrating his miracles, right? But I want us to raise our eyes and see that never should we neglect to see the ministry of Jesus is one of preaching and teaching. And I'll just pause here and say that's our ministry today too, preaching and teaching. Um, not all of it is from a formal formal standpoint as such as what I'm doing here before you. But that is our ministry. Uh, Luke 24, Luke 24, 46 to 47, Jesus says to his disciples, he's talking to his disciples on the Emmaus Road. Uh, and, well, actually, they've already gotten to their place. They've sitting down to eat, uh, I believe, if I'm correct. But double check me there to make sure I'm not conflating stories. Luke 24, 46 to 47, though, says, and, and said to them, Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Right? That was the purpose, that was the mission of the early disciples. And guess what? That is our calling today. That calling still remains. Uh, realize that there are still nations that do not know about the name of Jesus. So we must go. Jesus says after his resurrection, right, go and preach the message of reconciliation. Go and preach that sinners can be forgiven of their sins. Because this, friends, is truly the greatest need of humanity. There are many in our day that would say, right, the, our, our greatest problem, the greatest problem in society is that we have people living in poverty. That we have people going to bed hungry, children going to bed hungry. The greatest problem in our society is that we don't have enough education. We need better education. We need better public schools. We need better universities and colleges. No. That's not to say that those aren't problems. That's not to say that the lack of food or clothing or shelter is not significant and important. But the greatest problem is the stain of sin. The greatest issue facing our society, our country, isn't a war with Russia. It isn't the ascendancy of China on the world stage. It is that we have been plunged into sinfulness. Because guess what? The problems that are problems are caused by sin. The reason why there are those hungry and lacking shelter, is sin. The world is broken and not as it should be because of sin. But more than those other problems, it sets us, sin sets us at war with our Creator. We are estranged from the One who breathed life into us. We are fallen and corrupted and under judgment. So we need the message of Christ. We need the preaching and teaching of the Scripture. We need Jesus Christ to fulfill the Scriptures. We need the Christ's cause. And I want us to see that secondly, the Christ's cause in verses 17 through 19. The Christ's cause. So right, Jesus comes back, and again, uh, perhaps because of his 
uh, notoriety, perhaps because he was one who, uh, when he was in the synagogue growing up, uh, they always gave him the, the honor of reading the scripture. Uh, but, but especially now that he is one called rabbi, teacher, right? He is given this honor of reading the scripture. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now, why is the scroll of the prophet chosen? We don't know. And anything that we say we know is conjecture, right? We don't know why that is. Uh, God ordained it. Uh, it could be that uh, in the synagogue that there was a cycle of readings uh, from the different parts of the law or the different parts of the scripture. So the law, the prophets, uh, the, the Psalms, uh, the wisdom, what have you. Maybe that was the reason. And today, the, as Jesus stands to read, it's time to read out of Isaiah. But notice the intentionality of Christ because he enrolls the scroll and he found the place where it was written. Jesus has a purpose and a plan in his reading, right? He is intentional about it. It's not just, uh, let me do the, the old, uh, let's just skip through the pages and find something in eeny, meeny, miny. No, we'll read that verse, right? No, there was intentionality to it. And that he finds the place where it is written. He selects the text he wants to expound upon. And what does that text say? Well, we get in a kind of an abbreviated portion of it in verses 18 and 19. I say abbreviated because if you go to Isaiah uh, and maybe you have footnotes telling you what exact verses in Isaiah it is, uh, it's not all of the verses in there. Uh, so Luke is choosing for us the important verses, the verses that that are important for our understanding of who Jesus is. And what are these verses? What does the Holy Spirit give us in his word, in the word of God? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This text in Isaiah was first written to those who were suffering under Babylonian captivity. Those who would be exiled. And what was it supposed to be? An encouragement, right? An encouragement that the grace of God they would yet see again. And then we come and see that Jesus picks this text for a purpose. And what is his purpose? To describe his own ministry. And what is the ministry of Jesus? Well, let's examine what this, these verses say. First, we begin with the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, right? As we go to this, to the scripture, we see that this is what Jesus is, right? Luke's gospel, time and time again, uh, including his gospel and the book of Acts, uh, are replete with references to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a major party in the understanding of Luke's gospel. The Spirit of God is at work, and the Spirit of God is at work in the Son of God. Right? If we remember Jesus' baptism, and let's look at that at Luke 3, 21 to 22. Luke 3, 21 to 22. The Spirit descends on Jesus in a special way to signify to onlookers, who is this man? Luke 3, 21 now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, 
And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus. To what end? He continues, the, right, these verses continues. And secondly, we see He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And what is this proclaim good news? It's, it's to preach the gospel, right? To proclaim the good news is to preach the gospel. Uh, the same word that we, we see and we use. And what was this gospel for the poor? What is Christ preaching to the poor? That they would have every earthly treasure that they could ever want? Right? That they were going to get ready to trade in their, their camel for a beamer? A Maserati? Who's going to show up on their doorstep? It'd be very difficult because they would have no way to refuel, right? Uh, maybe we should give them a, uh, an electric vehicle. And then they could, you know, plug it in somewhere. No, right? Jesus' message is not to the poor, don't worry, you're going to be wealthy. You're going to have everything you ever want. No, Luke 6.20. Luke 6.20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Yours is the kingdom of God. That's the message Christ gave to the poor. That is the good news to the poor. Yours is the kingdom of God. The good news to those who are poor in this life is that they can have untold heavenly treasures. Now, this does not mean, right? Well, let's talk about what this does not mean. This does not mean that if you make under a certain level, if you're 200% of poverty, if you're 100% of poverty, right? That you're automatically ushered into the kingdom of God. Right, so our goal in life is not, well, let's just not make any money because that means that we'll be saved. Not at all the case, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. It takes trust in Christ Jesus. But we have to also understand that being rich comes with, with great difficulty. Being rich comes with great difficulty. So why is it that the poor are, are appointed to the kingdom of God and God doesn't say, and Christ doesn't say, you who are rich, yours is the kingdom of God. Why doesn't he say that? Because the rich have great difficulty. Uh, Mark 10, Mark 10, 23 through 25 tells us, Mark 10, 23 through 25. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, right, this is after uh, the rich young ruler has come to him. Uh, and Jesus loving this rich young ruler says, Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Right? The rich young ruler walks away sad, sorrowful. Why? Because he loves his riches. And so Jesus comments. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult salvation is to obtain for those who think they need nothing. If you're living in America, you are the rich person. So heed these warnings. 
Right? Heed this warning of Jesus. And don't think, well, that's not me, that's someone else. It is you. So heed the warning of Jesus. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And when you are wealthy, how easy it is to trust in your wealth and to think that your wealth will make you sufficient. That your wealth makes you important. And so God has no no choice but to let you into God, God's kingdom. How difficult it is. But the good news for the poor, right? Those who are destitute and have nothing. Those who know they have nothing. Know that they are dependent upon others. How easy, how much easier it is for them to trust in God. Because they know their dependence. They understand it. Right? I think that's the, the point. That's the, that's the key to understanding this. But this was the purpose of Christ, to come to a people destitute and in need and to offer to them the hope of heaven, the forgiveness of their sins. Thirdly, we see that he is to proclaim liberty to the captives. To those who are in bondage to their sins, Jesus preaches liberty, freedom. Fourthly, we see recovering of sight to the blind. And this Jesus certainly did, right? He healed those who could not see. John's gospel in John chapter 9 gives us uh, uh, one story of this, right? A man who was born blind, uh, who has lived his whole entire life blind, is healed by Jesus. This man, now healed, is brought before the local religious leaders because they want to inquire and see how is it that this man is really seen. And oh, by the way, it looks like Jesus did this. But no, that's impossible. Jesus couldn't do this because he's a blasphemer. Jesus is a bad man. So who really did this? Are you a plant? That's that's really their thinking, right? In John 9, is the religious leaders are like, this guy's a plant. And by the way, that's something that legitimately happens today by so-called preachers uh, who are so-called healers, right? They put these people in the thing that said, oh, I can't see, I can't see. Oh, you touched me. I can see now. I can see everything, right? And as soon as you start doing a little bit of digging, you're like, this is faker, right? This is this is fake. It's fake. So that's what they're that's what they're trying to unpack with with this man born blind, but guess what? There's no they can't defraud Jesus. They can't say, Nope, you're lying. This man was born blind, his parents testify to it, even if they are a little uh, uh trying to make sure that they're not in the war path of these religious leaders because they know that uh, they don't like Jesus. And it comes to the point where the man is actually thrown outside of the congregation. He's excommunicated uh, from, the, from the synagogue. He's excommunicated from the community uh, because he dares to say, Jesus healed me. And I don't know what you want to say about this man, but I know one thing, God doesn't listen to sinners. Jesus healed me. We pick up the story in verses 35 to 39, John 9, 35 to 39. Jesus heard that they, that as the religious leaders had cast him, that is the man born blind who can now see, out, again excommunicated. So Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, 
And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And realize here that, right, the man was born blind. He couldn't see when Jesus healed him. Jesus covered his eyes with mud and said, go wash your eyes in the pool. So he never saw Jesus. He didn't know what the man looked like. He didn't know who Jesus looked like. And so he asked, who is he? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And that right there, that's a, that's a, that's a miracle, right? Jesus is speaking to a man who lived his entire life blind. And he says, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. More to it there when Jesus says you have seen him. It's much more than to say your physical eyes have brought in light and have given you an image of who the Son of Man is. And it's much more than that. Your, your spiritual sight, you've been given spiritual sight to see the Son of Man, to understand that this is Jesus the Christ. You have seen him. Right, This man who is born blind is not just given physical sight, but spiritual sight. And he worships Jesus. And either that is blasphemy, right? If Jesus isn't the Son of Man, if, if he is not divine, that's blasphemy. Only God is to be worshipped. Or Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And this man sees and understands and believes uh, interestingly, right after Jesus says this, there's some Pharisees who are kind of looking on and, and watching, and they say, uh, well, we see too. We're not blind, are we? And Jesus tells them, you know, you wouldn't have guilt if you said if you didn't say that you see. But because you acknowledge that you know things, you acknowledge that you know the Scripture, and you don't believe what it says about me, your guilt is upon you. Woe to you, for greater will be your punishment in the day of judgment than for Sodom and Gomorrah. There are many in Jesus' day, in our own day, that do not see Jesus. Right? They may see in him a good moral teacher. They may see in him, he's a myth, he's a fable. He wasn't even a real person. Which, by the way, breaks the bonds of a reality because they will be as willing to believe that a blind poet named Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey uh, into discount where we don't have like real any corroboration. We have like one or two versions of the Iliad and the Odyssey as far as manuscripts go. And yet the scriptures, we have tons of manuscripts that all talk about the right that all uh, are consistent with one another to to by and large degree uh, and we have outside accounts so non-christian accounts of a person named Jesus who ministered and lived in this time and they're not willing to believe it they don't see him 
They don't see the Lamb who was slain and is yet living. They don't see and believe. They do not see and worship. They are blind. But this was the purpose of Jesus, to give sight to the blind. And for those that do see and believe, the Spirit of God has removed the scales from their eyes, took off the blinders, and made them to behold the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Christ Jesus, to which we say, praise God. Continuing on, he sets at liberty those who are oppressed. He sets at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, this dimension of Christ's ministry, as we read this, right, we might understand this in the sense of he casts out demons, right? He casts, he frees those who are oppressed by demons. We can even see it and understand it in the sense of healing, right? Healing of the body. Uh, there's a time when Jesus was in the, uh, during the Sabbath, and there is a woman uh, who had some kind of physical malady. I think it was a problem with her spine. She was crooked, bent over. And he asked the Pharisees, is it right that this woman should be healed on the Sabbath? And the point he makes there is, right, this woman has been oppressed by Satan in her spine, right? She needs physical healing. She's been oppressed, and I'm here to set her free. And he does. We could, so we could understand this in that sense. But in Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts, when we see this phrase of liberty, of freedom, it almost always refers to the forgiveness of sins. So much more, again, than physical healing is the result of Jesus' ministry is the forgiveness of sins, right? Through his the sacrifice of his body through his broken body and shed blood. We have the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus Christ proclaims liberty, freedom to all who would hear, all with ears to hear and eyes to see. Because in Christ's sacrifice, we have the payment of our sins. We have opened up to us the forgiveness of our sins. And again, here's a moment for us to praise God. Finally, we see here in this, what does this passage say? He proclaims, he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. He proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. And in other words, he preaches the gospel, right? Preaches the grace of God. Proclaim God's grace. Calvin, in commenting on this passage, draws ourselves, draws our attention to something essential here. Calvin writes, we see who are invited by Christ and made partakers of promised grace. They are persons who are every way miserable and destitute of all hope of salvation. This is the way of Christ. This is the purpose of God. This is Christ's cause. He was called of God the Father to this end, that he might make a people for his own possession. He was given the Spirit of God for this purpose. And you, you may be in a very miserable state. If you have not trusted in Christ, you are in the most miserable of estates because you are still held captive to your sin. You are blind and pitiful and poor. But Christ Jesus came for ones such as you. He came for those who are wicked and sick, the poor and blind. And if you look to him, you can know the good news. That Christ Jesus died for sinners. And in his death, you have the forgiveness of your sins. And in his resurrection, you have the hope of eternal life. 
And brothers and sisters, if this should be the ministry of Christ, if this is what Christ did to proclaim the good news, we should do so likewise. Again, there are those who are especially called and equipped and gifted to that end. There are those who are called to be preachers and teachers. There are those who are called as evangelists and missionaries. But understand that those who are especially called have a special burden and a special duty to that end. But that doesn't neglect you all from, from doing that. Right? Understand that. That your mission, your your calling of God on your life is this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the good news to the poor, to say to those who are mourning and hurting, there is hope in Christ Jesus, to say to those who are dead in their sins and trespasses, there is life in Christ Jesus. Understand that. Understand that this day. Never neglect your duty to preach Christ and Him crucified. Well, let us finish our passage today by considering the Christ's commentary in verses 20 and 21. The Christ's commentary. So Christ finishes reading. Right? He rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant. And He sits down. And just a fun, uh, a fun literary feature here is this ha- has what we call chiastic structure. There you go. See, you know that. Good. Because notice, first off, right, the scroll was, uh, he stood up to read. The scroll was given to him and he unrolled it. And here we do the opposite, right? He rolls it up, he gives it back, and he sits down. So there you go, a fun, um, fun literary moment, Janine. Right, Christ finishes reading and he sits, but he doesn't sit because he's done. So again, we have to understand culturally what's going on here. In the synagogue, those who were reading the scripture would stand in honor of the reading of God's word and reverence to the reading of the word. And they would actually sit down to teach or to explain it or expound upon it. Uh, so... All those cool churches where they have the little stool and the pastor sits on it, right? It's been done before. It's not that cool, right? Just saying. They're not the hipsters that they think they are. Uh, but I digress. Those, so he's sitting down. And again, remember, who is it he has read this before? His hometown. The people who grew up with. The people who know him and his family. And more than that, the people have begun to hear all these reports trickling back from all the, the surrounding region. And so what did they do when Jesus sits? They are fixed upon him, right? That's what the scripture says. All, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. It was probably one of those moments where you could hear every single sound that anyone made. Right, every little shuffle of the robe, right, every every little uh, scratch of the dirt of the floor, a sniffle. It was dead silent, and the eyes of all were fixed upon him, as he begins to sit and to expound upon it. 
They lean in and they're ready to hear. And what does Jesus say to them? Well, Luke tells us only a small portion of his of what he explains. Here we have kind of the summary of Jesus' sermon. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, again, a couple of things. We don't know what Jesus says. But what we do know is the people's response. If we keep reading, we see that everyone is marveling and speaking well of him. They're whispering to one another, do you hear the words of Jesus? How, what grace is, is he giving here? We're, this is amazing that he is teaching this way, that he is saying these things. How could he say these things? Do you believe this? I don't know. Isn't this the son of the carpenter? How's this, how's this person speaking this way? How is Jesus speaking this way? Right? There's, there's this, um, marveling going on between each each of them right as they hear Jesus' sermon and note too uh, a second feature today today it wasn't a hundred years before this it wasn't a hundred years after this it was in this moment Jesus says this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing Jesus came at the precise time that he did in accord with the will of God. He came with purpose and he came to fulfill the scriptures. All that Jesus says to the people during this time in the synagogue was to say the scriptures are fulfilled because the blind do see, the captives are set free, the oppressed are forgiven and free, the grace of God is poured out. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. And His first coming was for healing, right? He came for the poor. He came for the captives, the blind, the oppressed. As Luke records later in Luke 5, Luke 5, 31 to 32, Jesus answered them as He's speaking, right? As some marvel, why is Jesus with sinners? Doesn't He know they're sinners? Don't you know you can catch cooties from sinners? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The purpose of Jesus, right? Jesus Christ came for those who were in a desperate need. He is the one who would come and set the wrong things right. He didn't come merely for physical healing, but rather he came for the spiritual healing of his people. To those who are poor in the spirit, he gives the kingdom of God, the riches of the kingdom of God. To those who are captive to sin, he sets free. To those who are blind, stumbling about in great darkness, he shines forth the light of his countenance and into his marvelous light do they process. To those who have so long been oppressed by the evil one, he brings freedom and life eternal. He came to fulfill the scriptures. And indeed, as he explained to his disciples after his death, again, this in Luke 24, verse 27, Jesus walking along the road with them as they, as they mournful, kind of mournful procession back home saying, Oh man, Jesus is dead. What are we going to do? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus has Bible study on the road and teaches them about himself. And brothers and sisters in Christ, I may, know not, I may not know all of what is going on in your soul today, but there is one who does. There is one who is intimately 
familiar with you. Uh, He knows the things about you that no one else knows about you. And he does not recoil in shock and horror at your sin, at the mess that you are. No, rather, he draws close to you. If you are his, you are his. And nothing will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. And that, beloved, makes all the difference in the world. Read the mission of Jesus in verses 18 and 19 of our passage today. He came for those who need help. He came for you. And this should cause you to marvel. Do you ever marvel at that? Do you ever just say, wow, what an astounding, what an astounding Savior. Despite all that I've done, despite the wickedness of my flesh, Jesus came for me. It should cause you to worship, certainly. But more than just draw us inward, more than just draw us to introspection, it should cause us to turn outward. This marvelous work of Christ Jesus in our own lives and souls should burst forth because we live in a world that is sick and dying. And we live in a world that is always trying to kind of mend over the the sickness and the death with various things. We try and burn away the pain with drugs and alcohol, social media and porn and so many other things that never satisfy. We live in a world that hates Right, understand that, right? What we see, uh, we sometimes get concerned by the division maybe we see in our own country. Uh, the, the division we see in the political system, the division we see uh, on the local area, and we, we say, why is this the case? Because the world hates. Understand that. As, as, as much as the world does, it does what it does out of hate, hatred, hatred of God. That is the natural heartbeat of the human flesh. We live in a world that oppresses and captures poor blind souls. And you, brothers and sisters, you have a message that can set them free. You have been entrusted with a message of reconciliation. You have hope. So take it to them. Share abroad about this one who has come to fulfill the words of God. Tell them about the one who brings healing of the soul. So when you see your coworker, your neighbor, dealing with their problems in a way that will never fix them, the answer to them is not, Well, have you tried going back to school? Well, have you tried another doctor? We should point them to Christ. Not that we neglect those things. And and never that we neglect to do the good works that we have before us to do. To the hungry, let us feed them. To the naked, let us give them clothes. To those who need a winter coat, let us get them a winter coat. But also let us never neglect to say, the Lord Jesus Christ compels me to do this for you. Because he has given me more than I could ever imagine. He has brought me forgiveness of my sins. And you can have the forgiveness of your sins too. 
Christ's first coming was with the proclamation of the grace and mercy of God. But understand this. Christ's second coming will come with judgment. Make no mistake. Christ will fulfill the promises of God, including the judgment of sin. All that God has promised for those who do not trust in him, who do not rely on his grace, will come true. There is no hope outside of hope in Christ Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And either we will trust in Christ Jesus and be saved, or we will reject him and be cast forever from the gracious presence of the Lord God, only to know the terror and the, uh, the terror of his might, of his holy wrath. Let me speak more plainly. If you do not trust in Christ Jesus as your Savior, if you do not believe that he is the one who fulfilled the scriptures, your only hope is eternal judgment with fire. But as you yet draw breath today, turn to Christ Jesus. Believe that he is who he says he is. Trust in the Son of God to save you from your sins. And all the, right, what are sins? All the wrong that you do in thought and word and deed. All that which would otherwise condemn you forever before a holy God. Repent of your sins. Turn from them. Turn to God and be saved. Pray to him this very hour. Ask him for his help. Seek the one who has come for the poor, the blind, the imprisoned ones. Knock at the door of his kingdom to be let in. And you will find a gracious Savior, a God who is ready to do such for you that will cause you to marvel for all eternity. For if you believe in God, you will find the wrong set right. Let's pray. O Lord God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that your purpose from eternity past was to send your only begotten Son to give us the healing, to give us that which we needed, that which we could never earn on our own, that which we could never do on our own. You gave us your Son that we might be your sons and daughters, that we might be adopted into your family and so be co-heirs with Christ. What a marvel. What a marvelous thing it is that you have done, Lord God. We pray, Father, that you are glorified in us, your people. And Lord God, we pray that your spirit would be upon us to give us boldness to proclaim the hope of Jesus. Great Father, we pray for those who don't know you, those who are, are deep in, in mourning, those who are trying to assuage their guilt and shame with the things of this world. Father God, have mercy upon them and let them see Jesus. Let them see the Son of Man and worship. Father, have mercy on us. We pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen.